Good evening, everybody, and welcome to today's uh, Newton Abraham Visiting Professor Lecture. I'm very, very sorry about the delay in starting and that the fact that you were all corralled downstairs, but as you probably gathered, there were, in this wonderful 21st century of uh, modern-day technology, electronic problems, uh, which have now been resolved by the replacement of a new laptop. I was going to offer my traditional method, which was to give it a kick, but uh, that, that was refused. I'm sorry about that, okay? <laughs> But uh, let me just say a few words about the history of the Newton-Abraham uh, professorship. And this is really one of the success stories of Oxford. Um, and uh, basically, the noted biochemist Sir Edward Penley-Abraham worked in the Sir William Dunn School of Pathology, which is just down the road here, where Ernst Chain and Howard Florey, uh, with them, uh, he investigated the therapeutic potential of penicillin uh, and played a really important role in purifying it and decoding its uh, chemical structure. Abraham subsequently worked with Guy Newton in the discovery of the antibiotic cephalosporin. And there was a little story here which I didn't realize about, and I'm sure Piero, who's our distinguished lecturer today, will correct me on it if I'm wrong. But in fact, cephalosporin originated from effluents in Sardinia, which is of course a part of Italy. <laughs> so there's another wonderful collection between Italy. And I think it was uh, uh, the, 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 the person who actually sent it uh, to um, Newton Abraham to work on, uh, having no observed it, was one of their students. Uh, and he subsequently became president of Sardinia, I, I, I understand. So, you know, there's, there's much here in these tales than we ever imagined. Anyway, uh, Abraham with Guy Newton uh, dis discovered the antibiotic cephalosporin, uh, and it's the patent income from that antibiotic that has established the uh, 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 endowment of several charitable trusts for the support of biomedical research, including the E.P. Abraham Research Fund. Um, and the Newton Abraham Visiting Professorship was established in 1980 with a donation from the E.P. Abraham Research Fund. So we're very grateful uh, to, to, to that. And it's a wonderful success story in Oxford uh, that you know, we use these antibiotics pretty readily uh, and you forget that they actually just originated from just down the road from here. So if you ever get a chance, go into the Sir William Dunn School and visit that as well. And the Newton Abraham Visiting Professorships, uh, we've had many Nobel laureates and distinguished individuals such as our uh, professor today. And in all of this, um, it is administered and uh, supported by the Rector and Fellows of Lincoln College, and I'd like to thank them. And I'd like to thank the Department of Medicine, Nuffield Department of Medicine, and the Infectious Diseases Unit for having nominated um, Professor Oliara, who is uh, our um, distinguished speaker today. Now, Professor Oliaro doesn't need much of an introduction. He's going to tell us all about his work in a moment. Uh, but I just want to sort of say that he has been a distinguished scientist uh, with UNICEF and the WHO uh, for over 20 years now. And he's actually uh, been very instrumental in their uh, special program on research and training in tropical diseases, of which he's a renowned expert. Uh, so much so that there is absolutely no rest for him. He's having to depart at 3.30 tomorrow morning to West Africa, and I'm sure you can guess why uh, as well. So we wish you all the best with that and uh, to, to sort that out. He's also been an editor of the Cochrane Infectious Diseases Group, and uh, very unusually for a non-French uh, uh, 
um, individual. He's actually uh, been elected as a member of the French Academy of Medicine as well. So it attests to his absolutely distinguished nature and his uh, uh, world authority on things. And he's going to tell us today about diagnosis, treatment and disease epidemiology, the Trefoil Nod. Pierre, please. Well, thank you, Professor Tucker, for the wonderful introduction, and um, thank you all for coming this afternoon. The uh, good news is that uh, there's going to be a wine downstairs in a while. And I hope you've been told that uh, now, before you are allowed uh, to go downstairs and drink, have your drinks, you've got to be here, stay here as captive audience for uh, about a couple of hours now. Uh, <laughs> So, um, again, thanks, Professor Tucker. Thanks to the board for uh, giving this, me this uh, once-in-a-lifetime wonderful opportunity of being here. Um, so, let's get started. Uh, the triple knot. So, what does it mean, why? Um, well, it works now. Wonderful. So, this thing works now. So, um, in... Topology, this is called a, a non-trivial knot, meaning that it's a knot that cannot be untied without uh, cutting it. And for those who want to know more, uh, this uh, equation certainly explains everything. Um, but why this title? It's because... Uh, I just said that it was working. No, um, it isn't. So... Um, yes, because uh, it's about the relationship uh, between drugs being used for treatment, uh, diagnostics are used for uh, diagnosing a condition, but also to verify whether the condition has gone away after treatment or not, and um, the prevalence uh, of the condition in uh, in the environment, in the place where we work, and also how we control that uh, condition. And to give you an example, so just uh, in our uh, daily lives as uh, doctors or uh, health providers or, or even patients, so a patient uh, who is unwell, and uh, so the doctor is faced with the question, so it's got to decide as to whether uh, the clinical symptoms are enough uh, to give a treatment on clinical grounds or whether uh, a test should be done in order to verify uh, what's the causative agent and then give a tailored treatment. So you know what it is to give a treatment on the basis of the test. Then hopefully the patient uh, gets better. And uh, again, the decision is, is that enough? Or uh, should I do a test to verify that, uh, for, for instance, uh, the, con the condition's gone away, that, uh, uh, for instance, the bacteria or the parasites have been cleared from the organism by treatment. So, but how do we make those decisions? So, so it's based essentially on what is called the prior 
probability in Bayesian terms. So, so how, what do we know about the condition? Is that frequent or is it a rare condition here and now? How sensitive and specific the test? Should I use it, should I not? Is it expensive, by the way? And uh, how effective and safe is the treatment? Can I use it safely or uh, should I be cautious? Is that going to be effective? So these are the, ba the basic questions. And again, we are going back to the trefoil noise. There are uh, indeed different types of decisions. Uh, one of these is uh, you know, the individual patient, uh, the individual doctor or uh, health provider, or uh, decision makers are having to make decisions in terms of recommendations like the WHO would do for uh, how to, as to how to treat something um, in the world or a country um, where the decision makers got to decide uh, whether we are going to use a given treatment uh, or uh, not for uh, a condition. So I guess I'm number 34 uh, and I also believe I'm the first one in tropical diseases. So we'll be mentioning now neglected infectious diseases. As you know, people are talking about neglected uh, tropical diseases, so there are probably 17 now, but more uh, broadly, neglected infectious diseases, what do they have in common? Many of them have in common the fact that in terms of diagnostics, uh, the diagnostic is not sensitive enough, um, and therefore uh, will miss light infections, or, or maybe earlier phases of infections, which means that uh, treatment is delayed. Um, and when you use that diagnostic to, as a test or cure, again, because uh, it will not detect uh, low levels of infection, um, it would require maybe a long follow-up time, waiting for these parasites to come up again, if they did, but also would overestimate uh, um, treatment success. And hence, uh, the current reliance upon the treatments that we've got, and we believe they are in, uh, effective, but they are not effective enough in many cases. And then, what sort of diseases are we talking about? Uh, these are, uh, in many cases, highly prevalent, uh, and uh, they have uh, high uh, intensities of infection. But in some cases, and in some parts of the world, they are going down. And this is absolutely, of course, a good news, but at the same time, it means also that we've got to die in terms of diagnostics and in terms of treatment, they become all more inadequate. And of course, these things are related. We need long follow-up times because uh, the diagnostics are not good enough, but also because the treatments, uh, in many cases, are not good enough. Just some examples. In red is the duration of treatment, and in blue is the, the duration of follow-up. And just examples, schistosomizer that we'll be using as, as an example again, uh, currently requires one day single dose treatment. <coughs> Actually, it would be more effective if we could split the dose and treat for a couple of days or three days, but for practical reasons, one day. Three weeks of follow-up. Well, this is pretty good, isn't it? But then we have uh, other diseases like, uh, of course, malaria. Many malaria people here. Three-day treatment, follow-up between 28 days and 63 days. Um, worse, African trypanosomiasis, treatment for uh, 
10 days, two weeks, follow up, 18 months. Uh, and how do you diagnose that? Uh, spinal tap. Three times at, at least. Not very pleasant to go through. TB, tuberculosis, in the case of newly diagnosed tuberculosis, uh, sensitive to the first-line drugs, it's six-month treatment and a follow-up of two years after the end of treatment. Chagas disease, we don't even know how long we should follow patients up because uh, the question is whether a patient will develop a cardiac disease or not and will die of that. So, difficult. Again, so now we are using schistosomiasis as an example, just because I like it, and also because I think it's a good example. So today, um, typically, um, diagnostic is simple. We'll see it again in a second, but it's uh, certainly not very sensitive. Treatment, Trazequanta, very good drug, um, very safe, but does not eradicate the infection in all patients all the time. And uh, it is highly prevalent in many areas uh, with high intensities of infection. So what do we do? Then, because the diagnostic is not good enough, then you don't test because the condition is highly prevalent. So you just has decided so it's not worth doing that. And we just treat everyone using what is called mass drug administration. So preventive chemotherapy being given to everyone, either at the community level or uh, school. So, school by, so it will be uh, school-aged children, depending or the entire population, depending on how prevalent the infection is in the community. A bit of um, schistosomiasis again, so this would be the example of intestinal schistosomiasis. So this is the gut, I know it's not very good, but that's the gut, and these are uh, the adult worms. Uh, the big one, the pink one, is the female, of course, and uh, the, 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 the small uh, and uh, slender one is the male. But they are uh, parked uh, in the mesenteric veins, so they are not in, in the gut. So they do things together, and, uh, they, and the female would lay eggs. And the eggs would be in the feces, and there's a test, which is our current test that measures, uh, counts uh, the eggs uh, in the stools. Now we treat, so we don't see the adults. We can't see the adults. And when we treat, we, but when we treat the adults. So, if treatment is effective or partly effective as it is most of the time nowadays, there will be fewer eggs that are excreted. And the current test may or may not see them because the current test, as Michel would know very well, is the catocuts. And one single catocut will need 24 eggs to be seen to detect. If it is less, they will miss it. You can do multiple catocats, and then, of course, its sensitivity goes up. But, of course, this is highly, uh, is not very practical in, in, in the field. Um, and now there are uh, new tests that have been tried, which is uh, that, that, that measure uh, uh, 
antigens that are uh, secreted by the adults, uh, and they are uh, called the cathodic, uh, dianodic uh, circulating agents, which will be uh, are useful to quantitate uh, to the, 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 the presence of uh, adults uh, in the body. So this example is to say that what we've been using so far is an, uh, inadequate, and, but there are uh, prospects for having something which is it's a bit better than what we got today. But things are changing, so the goalposts are shifting. And for a good reason, we are uh, now moving from control to elimination of some of the diseases because uh, their uh, prevalence has gone down th through successful interventions. But this means that uh, the tools that we've got today of becoming even more uh, inadequate for uh, the new objective now, which is to eliminate the disease and not just control the disease. So we are moving from a situation of where many people are infected and are infected uh, heavily, uh, so with a high, high prior probability of infection, whereby we treat all uh, through mass drug administration without testing, to a situation where the majority of the people in the community are not infected, and where we shift from mass drug administration to test and treat. So we we'll have to test many peop people to find a few who would uh, uh, be treated. But again, like I said, so if the tools we got today are inadequate already now, they are even more so in this situation. And this is what ha what's happening with schistosomiasis, of course, but it's also happening with other diseases. But when we move from one situa situation to the other, this means that the type of products uh, are, uh, di that we need are different, and they should be developed uh, using different criteria. And this is called the target product profile for those who are in, uh, involved uh, in, uh, in product development. So the characteristics of the product that you need. And what characteristics do we need? So we are moving from treatments that are uh, very safe normally, because they are so safe that they can be given to millions of people, but whose effectiveness is um, borderline in some cases, and that can be given by non-qualified personnel at the community level by school teachers and with uh, diagnostics that are uh, not particularly sensitive and therefore are not being used to a situation where we would like to have uh, drugs that we do not have now in many cases, which are very safe but also very effective. And it doesn't matter if they can be really given by non-qualified personnel because they can be given by, and they should be given by, health workers at medical facilities where uh, there is a test uh, that is available and is sensitive enough uh, to be used in those conditions. Like I said, this is not unique to schistosomiasis, which is moving, therefore, from mass drug administration, control with mass drug administration, to elimination using individual case management, test and treat. 
but also a situation like malaria, which in some cases, in some region, it could be eliminated using a combination of uh, uh, individual case management, but also widespread use uh, through mass drug administration, such as, for instance, uh, seasonal malaria chemoprophylaxis, as it is now being done in some regions. Uh, Visceral analysis also is uh, on the verges of being eliminated as a public health uh, uh, problem in the Indian subcontinent uh, using individual case management. A different example is with the filariasis like onchocerciasis and lymphatifiriasis, which are moving from control to elimination at least partly uh, through mass drug administration only. And then there are diseases like TB, which are not moving, are sort of there, and not much is happening. So in order for all that to happen, we need uh, a paradigm shift. Uh, we need uh, R&D, of course. Uh, we need research and development of new products. Uh, but these products are not just any product. Uh, so uh, the sort of logics that are behind uh, what is not normally currently being done by pharma uh, industry does not apply here because they got to be neat tailored uh, both uh, for uh, diagnostics and uh, for uh, the um, uh, drugs. But also we got to be forward looking and we got to be cognizant that the situation changes all the time and the, 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 the products that we should be developing today are uh, the products that we will be needing probably 10 years from now. So a big role of the public sector in, in, in knowing what the trend is going to be and uh, what the objectives are going to be and the needs in years from now. Essentially, the drugs and, prod and diagnostics that we should be using today and we don't have um, should have been planned for uh, at least 10 years ago, if not more. But also we need uh, responsible deployment and use uh, of these products. And now, um, something that maybe is closer to everybody's experience, uh, which is fever. Uh, fever, so again, the patient coming with, with fever. And, but this fever could be caused by many, could have many causes. Could be a viral infection, could be a bacterial infection, it could be many species. Uh, or in some parts of the world, it could be malaria. So how are we going to decide which, which is which? So, well, there are some tests, but not for all. And we will need a test that could cover um, various conditions and tell us um, that is what it is and what is not, so that we can treat uh, the patient with the right uh, drug. The patient gets better. We will reduce wastage, antibiotics being widely used too much today, and we reduce also drug pressure and therefore drug resistance. And the people here who've been working on malaria or who are working on malaria or a, um, bacterial infection know um, uh, how much damage has been done by inappropriate use of these drugs. Also because of the absence uh, of the right diagnostics. So what is the paradigm change, in t for instance, for fever? The big uh, 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 paradigm change is that uh, we will need 
research and development, of course, of new diagnostics, of the type of these uh, multiplex type of diagnostics that will allow us to select the right treatment at the right time. And these uh, will, be, will have to be deployed widely. And we need R&D for new drugs, uh, like new antibiotics, uh, which will be specific for uh, a certain pathogen, and particularly for uh, those that are already resistant uh, to other uh, drugs. But these uh, will have, to, contrary to the diagnostics, uh, they will have to be deployed uh, in very few cases, just on a need basis. And in order for all that to happen, we need uh, both incentives for R&D and for the this type of need-driven R&D, but also regulations in order to reduce the improper use of these drugs and, of course, a change in the prescribers and our own behaviours, both as prescribers and patients and users, as to what we want to prepare to prescribe and what are we demanding. So, by now, we've gone the full circle and back to the introduction because we are talking about antibiotics uh, and the work that, uh, that uh, Howard Flory with colleagues and obviously uh, Fleming and Chain, but also Abraham and Newton with the Kefalosporins did. So that's full circle. I think I did it in about uh, 20, 25 minutes. And uh, I know I'm standing between you and uh, your reception. So thank you very much. And of course, I'd be very happy to entertain questions. So thank you. Thank you.